0: Welcome back to the Tasty Morsels of Critical Care Podcast and in yet another departure from the Holy Stone Tablets of Oaks Manual today we'll talk a little bit about one of our favourite gram-positive cocci, Staphylococcus aureus Diagnosis and management of infections with this bug are a common occurrence in the intensive care unit and it behooves us to have a working knowledge of some of the complexities of its investigation and treatment that often fall to our microbiology or infectious disease colleagues. So accept this for what it is, an intensive summary of somebody else's expertise So about 30% of us are colonized with Staph aureus and much of this is simple MSSA but there are increasing cohorts of MRSA in the mix there too. And when causing an actual infection we see Staph aureus implicated in lots of different types and um, clinical presentations. So, such as a skin and soft tissue infection, things like cellulitis, folliculitis, abscesses, impetigo, um, a toxin-mediated GI illness from eating food contaminated with Staph aureus and that's the one where you get the vomiting and the diarrhea very rapidly after ingestion of food. There's pre toxin that causes the GI syndrome you can get it in bone and joint infections Uh, you can get it in a sepsis with a toxic shock type syndrome it's another clinical presentation you can see pneumonias especially in the hospitalized population in ICU we see lots of staff pneumonia cerebral infections in the context of trauma neurosurgery and drains if you have a EVD in there for a while it gets infected that would be a common source Um, Or things like bloodstream infections from anywhere from infective endocarditis to device infection, maybe an endovascular graft or something like that has got infected. So many of that list above will have nothing to do with critical care and will come nowhere near us in the ICU. But staph really comes into its own when it gets into the blood. Getting a phone call from microbiology that your septic patient in the ICU has staph aureus in the blood is a relatively common phenomenon and it should trigger a specific sort of response. A staph bacteremia carries with it a roughly 20% mortality, at least that's what's commonly quoted, so it's something to take very seriously. This is a disease which has significant metastatic complications, so once you realise there's a staph in the blood, you should be hunting out the other sites it could have spread to. It's often difficult to tease out if the infected site is a primary site of infection or indeed has it seeded from somewhere else but a good look list of places to have a look for other sites of infection would include the heart valves cardiac devices things like pacemakers the spine Bones and joints, particularly the large joints like the knees, are a common one. Um, or certainly osteomyelitis around the spine, embolic abscesses to the lungs, or even a primary pneumonia, um, septic emboli to the brain, even things like brain abscesses can develop from that. And then skin and soft tissue issues, skin and soft tissue infections that you just haven't found in your initial examination. So for ICU level staph bacteremia, I find it's probably the heart, the spine and the lungs as the main sites of infection. Needless to say that if there's a collection of pus somewhere in staph bacteremia, strong consideration should be given to draining that collection of pus. Obviously acknowledging the complexities of decompressing a spine, etc. It's not something that you can easily do. The brain primarily becomes an issue in someone with infective endocarditis and a valve that is falling to pieces. Okay, so if you've got a really horribly regurgitant um, aortic valve, for example, from staph aureus endocarditis, uh, and these people are in fluid heart failure and they're really struggling, they're definitely meeting criteria for a surgical um, approach to their endocarditis. They need a valve replacement. So surgery is typically considered. But there is some understandable reluctance to give someone 40,000 units of heparin to anticoagulate them for a bypass run when there may or may not be a lump of staph aureus somewhere uh, in the head. And as a result, they often end up getting an MRI to ensure that the brain is clean before they commit to things like, right, we're going to put them on bypass and fix their valve. Interesting, the, the PET CT scan has become a key tool in the diagnosis and management of staph bacteremia. <clears throat> At least, it seems to have become key in centres with timely access to PET CT. I can say that I have never managed to get an ICU patient through a PET CT and they inevitably get it later on when all the excitement of the ICU stay seems to have died down. I don't know, your experience might be different from mine. Once we know that there's a Staph aureus in the blood, what should be reaching? What what should we be reaching for treatment wise? Typically, the patient will already be on some antimicrobials before you even get the result, so usually it's a question of rationalizing the type of bug juice that they're on. So vancomycin is typically going to be our go-to for gram-positive cover until we get an ID, as the, as the MRSA status is often not known uh, in a fresh patient who's just been admitted to ICU. If it turns out to be an MSSA, then the swap is typically the, for us, it's for high dose flucloxacillin, say something like two grams every four to six hours. This swap is important as an anti-staphylococcal penicillin like flucloxacillin is actually a better drug for killing staph aureus than vancomycin. So if it's an option, it should be used. And sometimes we feel when we step down from vancomycin to flucloxacillin that we're giving them a less, inadverted commas, kind of powerful antibiotic. But actually flucloxacillin is a much better drug for killing staph aureus. There are some nuances and uh, once you get into the weeds that are certainly beyond the scope of an ICU exam about the addition of when you might add an aminoglycoside, glycoside um, for the TLDR, it's not routinely recommended, or the addition of rifampicin, again, uh, too long didn't read, generally only in the context of prosthetic joints or hardware. The next job we need to do really is to document clearance from the blood. Once on the appropriate bug bug juice, repeat the blood cultures. If you're killing the bug, the bug should be cleared from the blood within 48 hours. Failure to do so suggests that you've got an issue with source control. So go back and have a think about what you need to image further. Do you need to look at the heart valves? Do you need to look at the spine, etc.? Duration is split, um sorry, duration of the antibiotics is split into uncomplicated and complicated staph bacteremia. So for an example of uncomplicated might be someone who say they've got a PIC line, staph bacteremia that clears their cultures very quickly, it gets the PICC line pulled out and has a good quality negative transthoracic echo. Um, they have uncomplicated staph aureus bacteremia. And typically two weeks is probably sufficient for them. A complicated staph bacteremia might be someone, let's say they have a spinal osteomyelitis, not needing surgery, and maybe it took a week or so before the culture's cleared. They're more likely to need something like six weeks. Of course, all of these patients should likely have some specialist expertise involved, rather than just us as the intensivists, um, and there will be subtleties and exceptions to all of these things, but that should be the basics of it to get you through an exam question. The sources for this was actually, there's actually a pretty decent article up to date um, on staph aureus bacteremia that covers the vast majority of this. Thanks for listening and I'll speak to you next time.